Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Ah, that feeling, knowing that you've figured it out, that you've done it right, that you know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. That overwhelming feeling of assurance is only felt by those that have done the research, spent the time, analyzed the data, put in the work, and come up with the only possible correct answer. Or by imbeciles who have strong opinions and weak IQs. Both the fool and the wise are unwaveringly confident in their conclusions. Not implying anything, I'm just saying. On today's episode, we're going to learn how you are your brother's keeper and your niece's neighbor down the street, some guy in Kentucky, and a 50-year-old with a Cheetos dust-covered wife-beater t-shirt living in his mom's basement. Yeah, they're all your responsibility as well. Then we're going to uncover something simply impossible. And finally, we're going to play God. So get out your checkbook or Venmo or whatever you crazy kids are using these days. Prepare to believe three impossible things before breakfast. And remember that every time a bell rings, you'll need to hand out wings. Because I've never been more sure about anything in my life. Here we go. Dan, you likely say, how do you come up with things to ramble on about? You you must really have to dig and dig and dig, as there's just nothing worth noting taking place in all of the land these days. Well, sit down for this. It's actually not that hard. Would you believe that with just a slight bit of looking around... There's actually a pretty robust amount of goings-on right now. Case in point, and unless you're a professional like me, you, you probably haven't heard of this, but would you believe there's a little row about student loans? <laughs> Something about how people were forced at gunpoint to sign in blood for a massive amount of debt that they argued to no avail they could never pay back, and, and then given only options of things like gender studies and various very specific societal, historical, and philosophical fields of study in which to get a degree, knowing that they'll never be able to make a dime in any of those fields. Oh, very nefarious. And from what I'm seeing, it was all done by the right. I think Donald Trump, if I understand right. I'm pretty sure he's the culprit, and always has been. But we're on the precipice of making this all right, of fixing the problem Oh, except for those darned orange men. Oh, those followers. They still are trying to destroy the innocent lives of young college students who they just want to work hard and be out of debt and take responsibility for their lives so they can become mature, productive, law-abiding United States citizens. I th- I think that's what I've been reading. I don't know. Maybe we should look maybe just a little further. Come, walk with me. From CNBC.com, headline... Eight attorneys general call on Biden to cancel federal student debt for every borrower. See? Problem nearly solved. If only we can get President Puddinhead to stop sucking on Jill's fingers long enough to loosely, shakily grip a pen and scrawl something resembling a signature across a page that he can't read, nor could he understand if he could read it, 
in a room that's not the real Oval Office, just a soundstage, so they can use a permanent and huge teleprompter, and yes, that's real, and in which he has no idea where or why he's there in the first place. Let's see what the always trustworthy CNBC has to say about these brave souls from Hawaii, Minnesota, New Mexico, Michigan, New York, Illinois, Washington, and Puerto Rico. Let's see what they have to say, shall we? So apparently these Eternai General wrote a letter to Biden, which of course begs the question, were there pictures? And who will read and explain the words to him? But I digress. What they'd like is for Biden to forgive the federal student debts for everyone, every borrower. Letitia James, the New York Attorney general let, and I only say it that way because it would probably annoy her, says, quote, While I commend President Biden for giving serious consideration to forgiving $10,000 per borrower, we must take bolder, more decisive action to end this crisis and provide Americans with the tools they need to thrive. In part, the letter reads, quote, We are currently embroiled by a significant international conflict. Our economy remains fragile, and consumer prices for everyday necessities are spiking at rates unseen for decades. Now is not the time for half measures, extensions, or patchwork solutions. Now is the time for decisive action. Sorry. We call upon your administration to immediately exercise its authority to cancel federal student loan debt for every borrower. And when they call for him to immediately exercise his authority, they mean stroke of a pen in executive order, which Biden has previously mumbled that this really needed to be done through Congress, which, I mean, you know, they're the holders of the purse strings. So, yeah, one would think that they should be involved But, of course, now he's being pressured, so we're really not sure how long his handlers and drug pushers can hold off the pressure until they just can't take it anymore. Let's look at a few facts first, shall we? I know we we don't really like facts. They're inconvenient, but let's take a look. According to Zipia.com, they have the following facts about federal student loan debt as of 2022, which comprises 92% of all student loans. I mean, think of that. 92% of all student loans are held by the government, more accurately, by you and me. Well, if you're a taxpayer, you and me. We're literally the guarantors of these loans. So total student debt is currently at $1.6 trillion. Now, I've seen anywhere from 1.4 to 1.7, so, you know, somewhere in there. There are about 45 million borrowers, 48% of which either hold a graduate or other professional degree. The resultant average is $29,000 per borrower, give or take. The highest debt holders are those from dental school at $292,000, followed by medical school at $201,000. I can't even imagine. The average payment is $393 per month. The average loan term is 20 years. Blacks hold an average of $32,000, while whites hold an average of $18,600. 54% of borrowers feel like their career has been hindered by student loans, and I'm not even sure how that's possible, but I guess if they feel like that, it, it must be true. 
33% have worked multiple jobs or extra hours because they have loans. Now, it didn't say to pay off the loans just because they have them, which is a curious way to phrase that, thinks I. 25% work outside their field due to debt, which tells me that at least 25% paid or accurately borrowed too much to get a piece of paper that's utterly useless. 50% have decided to not pursue further education or they've put it off because of their debt. Good! That's a rational decision. Those with $100,000 or more in debt said the debt has delayed them owning a home. Again, good! There's nothing saying you must own a home. And if you're in debt, rent! You don't need to buy a home while you're in massive debt. Now, even this website tries to make the case that it's just not fair how some states owe more on average than others. So I grabbed their data. I threw it in Excel. Because as an engineer, and as my niece well knows, this kind of thing calls for a spreadsheet. And although it is true that some states owe more on average than others, the reality is 42 of the 51 states, plus D.C., are within 10% of the total average. Another five of the remaining nine are within 15%. Only two of them are actually outside 20% of the average. D.C. is at 58% greater than average, and Maryland is at 21% above average. Huh. I wonder what those two have in common. Maybe a little bit of an arrogant attitude that they're the elite of the elite, so, you know, if you want the alleged best, you'll need to pay or borrow for it. Funny how the most debt per borrower, on average, is right around the very hub of people that not only made student loans much easier to get, pushed college for everyone even more, and now wants to swoop in and save the day. It's also funny, not like a clown, but funny that DC students owe, on average, $55,000. And D.C. leftists want Biden to forgive up to $50,000 per borrower. I'm not saying they're dirty. I'm just saying that if you saw them walking, they'd probably resemble Pigpen from the Charlie Brown comics. Now, one of the points that many people, including me, have made is, Hey, I worked. I refinanced. I scrimped. I debt snowballed. I paid off my student loans. Where's my slice of the pie? Can I have mine reimbursed? Now, for most of us, again, me included, I'm not actually looking for a handout reimbursement of my loans, plus fees, plus interest, plus pain and suffering, which I value at about $8 million. Most of that admittedly is pain and suffering. Most of us just want to point out that in an effort to be fair, the loving fair Dems are being hypocritical, as usual. But as AOC just recently told us, sometimes doing the right thing doesn't benefit us directly or some such nonsense. I'll be honest, I read it earlier and I'm not looking it back up. That's close enough. But let me point out, she's one of the ones that wants this debt forgiveness because she apparently just can't make ends meet on a congressional salary. So her definition of the right thing would in fact benefit her directly. Shocker, I, I know. So like I said, that's a point that a lot of us that have degrees of some sort and paid for college or paid off our student loans that's one that we've made. But on Yahoo Finance, we have yet another point that I hate to admit, 
I neglected due to my tunnel vision, I guess. Quoting Will Bach, a financial advisor in Ohio, quote, while some may view this debt forgiveness as a slap in the face to people who were responsible and paid off their student loans, this is a bigger slap in the face to those Americans who never went to college. Uh, yeah. See, those that went to college on average make more than those that didn't. Those that went to college on average have more income potential than those that didn't. And although the demographic is definitely shifting, there are still a number of people at parent or grandparent generations that never went to college, but their child or grandchild did, which is great. But now we're expecting these people to work, to pay for someone else, something that they may have already worked extra, saved everything, trying to send their own child or grandchild to college. Or if someone decided to go into the working world rather than college, we're penalizing them now? You like your garbage picked up and schools and buildings kept clean? You like your car fixed or first responders to come when called? How about when you need that roof shingled, a shed built, a tree cut down? And the list is huge. Many, many jobs don't require college or a degree of any sort. They either do it with on-the-job training or they have an abbreviated tech school or something along those lines. And we expect all of these people to pony up the dough for adults that refuse to take responsibility. I don't know. Seems wrong. But maybe we don't understand the burden these poor, innocent children, these urchins are weighed down with. Anchor around the neck. That's how Chucky Schumer says it. In a speech given in February of 2021, Chucky Schumer told us this, quote, This debt holds people back from buying cars, going on vacations, from starting families, from getting the job they want to get. It is a huge anchor on our entire economy, and there's very little the president could do with the flick of a pen that would boost our economy more than canceling $50,000 of student debt. It would be a huge push into our economy. So there. Did you even think of that? <laughs> Probably not. It's stopping them from buying cars. Well, I mean, new, nice cars. And houses. And we all know that if, if you don't own a home, you're basically homeless and will most likely die exposed and penniless on the street. And they can't get jobs they want. Although I thought that college was supposed to propel you into the career you chose. Is this again more proof that people are making stupid decisions when choosing a major? Huh. And they can't start families because all of us that have had children know you never, ever, unless you're a moron, start a family until you've got all that money thing buttoned up and locked down. And, and this, this one is the most egregious. They can't go on vacation. Just try to picture your life without being able to Go to the beach or Hawaii or to Europe every year. These poor souls can't spend their money on luxuries because of these darn fool obligations. Are you getting the idea I'm not feeling sorry for these adults? I mean, I'm, I'm laying it on pretty thick here. Well, what would the implications be for those of us that pay taxes? I mean, it's not like Chucky or Liz Warren or Mr. Ed. <laughs> sorry. AOC wants us to each hand $50,000 to every college student, right? So here we go. Our annual federal tax revenue in 2021 was about $3.8 trillion. If we forgave, well, not we, if they forgave all of the $1.7 trillion, that would be about 45% of the total revenue. What this means to you and me, assuming total forgiveness is done, let's just say in 2022, 
before the election, right before the election, is that for every dollar you pay in income taxes this year, 45 cents will have gone to pay someone's student loans. <laughs> now how charitable do you feel, huh? Now think of it this way. Let's say you bring home $100,000 a year and you pay $25,000 in taxes. That's probably a realistic approximation. It would mean that you just paid $11,250 of someone else's student loan. <laughs> Yay! Hashtag fairness. Breaking this down further so you can do the math on your own when they announce how much this debacle will cost us, for every $100 billion that they forgive, about 2.6 cents of every dollar you pay in income taxes will go to someone else's loan. But why would it cost us? I mean, the government just writes it off, right? Eh, not exactly. See, the government only has our money, our taxes. They don't have any money of their own. The loans were taken out from the tax revenue as an investment and paid to the colleges. So the colleges have the money. They're probably not going to give it back. The money was loaned out of our tax revenue, theoretically, at a specific interest rate, meaning the money returned would actually be slightly more than what was borrowed, thus investment. And now we're saying, eh, don't worry about it. Well, where does that revenue that's supposed to be coming in every month, where does that come from now? And we already run a deficit every year, meaning the government puts more and more on the credit card every year, which we borrow from someone at an interest rate that we have to pay back. And now we want to add $1.7 trillion more to the debt, the deficit, for 2022? That seems, I don't know, suboptimal? I know that Schumer says it'll actually help the economy, you know, because they'll spend all of that money that I thought they didn't have because they can't pay their loans in the first place. Well, they'll spend all that on houses and cars and families and vacations. And that'll generate sales tax and something, something. Voila, we're in the money. Ha, we're in the But like I said, if these borrowers can't pay the $400 a month on average, with what money will they do all these other things? Curious. Okay, we could go on and on about how ridiculous this is, how this absolutely will not return anywhere near what's going to be lost, and how this will massively hurt our already ailing economy, and how this will literally worsen the already runaway inflation. We can also discuss how the Bible clearly tells us to be neither a borrower or lender, or, or how the borrower is slave to the lender. But that's kind of like telling the guy that just racked up his car, hey, buddy, what you should do is drive safely and carefully. I mean, thanks, but my new Tesla is burning down the neighborhood right now. How about we take care of the problem at hand? Give that advice to those who haven't self-driven themselves into a tree. What do we do now, in other words? Well, first, I have no problem with those that had loans and have now become disabled and can't work to have their loans dismissed, and there's a program for that. I have no problem with those that made the deal that they'd work in certain areas, do certain jobs for a number of years in order to have their loans forgiven. There's a program for that. We could talk about if that's a good idea in general going forward, but a deal's a deal. I don't even have a problem with those that were defrauded by a now defunct college having their debt forgiven. But all those combined are relatively minor. What I do have a problem with is that people aren't willing to take responsibility. We've created a culture where we're trying to remove consequences for everything. Because consequences don't feel good. 
Shoplifting? Ah, oh, well, as long as it's under $1,000. Rape someone? How about a slap on the wrist and back out on the street looking for the next victim, huh? Illegal drugs? Ah, it was only a little bit free to go. Kill someone? I mean, your childhood wasn't excellent. We'll get you some help. Can't win? We'll just stop keeping score. Plus, trophies for everyone. Still can't win? How about if you pretend to be someone you're not so you can be the best? Unprotected random sex? Ah, don't worry. We'll evacuate that little parasite you created. Signed up for a ton of debt to get a degree you can't use that isn't worth the debt you took out even if you could use it? Ah, let's just cross that off then, shall we? How does that feel? I mean, this is simply amazing to me. All throughout the Bible, we see consequences for actions. We see the laws handed down to Moses and how many of them required a death penalty as a consequence for the action. Proverbs gives us contrasting if-then statements such as, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We find Moses in the book of Numbers relaying what God said, quote, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. In 2 Samuel, when David took Bathsheba, another man's wife, had sexual relations with her, got her pregnant, he tried to cover it up. In fact, a little side note, if you want to remember commandments 6 through 10, just go to the story of David and Bathsheba, and you can see him progress in order from 10 to 6. This is how I try to remember them anyway. 10, David coveted, another man's wife. 9, David lied to himself, saying he was the king, so this is all fine. 8, David stole. This woman, he stole from another man. 7, David committed adultery. This one should be pretty obvious, I think. 6, David murdered Uriah. Murdered Uriah, the husband. David did what he could to avoid the consequences, but then Nathan the prophet came. And Nathan told him a story of a rich man with many flocks and a poor man with a sheep that was like part of the family. A guest came to the rich man's house, and the rich man took the poor man's lamb and used it to feed his guest rather than taking one out of his abundant flocks. Now, David was rightfully very angry by this. This wasn't right. This man needed to pay the consequences for his actions. And then Nathan revealed the truth. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Well, David prayed and mourned until the point that the child died. Then he stopped. He accepted the consequences for his actions. Student loans may not be as egregious as this. 
but loosely paraphrased, if they can't be trusted to take a little responsibility, they'll never be able to handle a lot of responsibility. The economic consequences on our country brought about by forgiving these student loans will be nothing more than another massive hole blown into an already sinking ship. The financial upside to those that already can't afford to pay these loans, allegedly, will be minimal, at best. But the moral damage on society by telling nearly 20% of our adult population that there aren't, in fact, consequences, that contracts aren't binding, that responsibility can be absolved with the stroke of a pen, that government will take care of you, that will be devastating. And getting the country back to biblical principles and... I'm not even saying to teach the Bible, although that would be a pretty solid idea. I'm just saying, do what our founders did. Base our country, our education, our financial system, our judicial system on principles found in the Bible. I know that doesn't fix everything now. I mean, this goes back to the car accident analogy. But if we don't get back to true truth, to the ethics and morals taught in the Bible, we won't have lost generations. We'll have a lost civilization. Bringing the nation back to God doesn't guarantee us anything, but continuing to move in the direction we're moving certainly does. As Christians, we all realize that there are definitely some things that we can only take by faith, and there are some things that we need to exercise our faith while also being granted evidence, great or small, that backs up the biblical accounts that we read. Many times over the years, secular, shall we say, pagan historians, scientists, archaeologists have told us that so-and-so uh, never existed, or that such-and-such such a city is made up. There's just no evidence for it. And then they dig into the earth and find the city, or find tablets or parchment with names and accounts that exactly fit what the Bible tells us. Time and time again, the naysayers have had to eat their nay. For the Christian, look, I, I'd like to say that we don't gloat a little bit over it, that we exude humility, eh, but we generally exude humanity more than we do humility. As we read the news, every once in a while, we'll run across a story that the secular world dismisses or throws an evolutionary millions of years spin on it to fit their accepted narrative but we can view it from a biblical lens, and in doing so, we have a much more plausible explanation, and yet more of that proof we love to find that shows that the Bible is true. Found on Fox9.com headline, Human Skull Dating Back Nearly 8,000 Years Found in Minnesota River. So a very short article, because the secular press misses the obvious significance, the story is that two kayakers in September of 2021, in a Minnesota River in Renville County, Minnesota, which is south-central Minnesota, they came across a skull. It was analyzed first by the medical examiner, determining that it was a human skull. Then it was analyzed by the FBI forensic anthropologist, who determined that the skull was from a young adult male. It was then further analyzed using carbon-14 dating to determine how old the skull was. In past episodes, I've discussed the faults of various dating methods, but what we know is that the more recent the sample, the more accurate the dating. So this skull was dated and found to be from about 5,500 to 6,000 BCE, you know, before Common Era, which is what you and I would normally call BC before Christ, but the secular world can't use that, you know, because... Christ, so they still time their years based on the split in history our Savior made, but they changed the wording so they don't have to acknowledge that Christ is the reason we counted down to zero and then started counting back up from zero. Let's move on. 
there were a couple things that they discovered while analyzing the skull. First, it had a depressed area. No, no, no. Not a sad area. A dent. As in, he was whomped with something. Second, and I have no idea how they determined this, but they said he had either had a heavy marine-based diet or a diet high in maize. <laughs> That's corn to you and me. Uh, pearl millet or sorghum. Are you seeing it yet? Huh? Now, the article concludes with, quote, The sheriff's office called science and technology incredible and thanked its partners to help dive into this piece of history. And they missed it. They totally missed it. Did you? Now, who do you know that lives somewhere around the beginning of creation, would have eaten a plant-based diet, and died as a young man due to blunt force trauma? Uh-huh, that's right. This could very well be the skull of Abel, the son of Adam and Eve that got bashed on the skull with a big rock by his brother Cain. What an amazing find! Now, before you start clucking your tongue at me, and I'm not sure what that means, I've just read about it when people apparently used to call it that, you want to think about this. We know that the Garden of Eden is protected, right? Man is not allowed in there. We can't see it, if it still exists anywhere on the earth. But Abel didn't live in the garden. No, his parents screwed that up for the boys and all of us pretty much right away. They lived outside the garden, where Adam worked hard to provide food for the family. As meat was not part of our diet at that point, only allowed after the flood, Abel would have eaten the types of foods the article mentions, a grain, plant-based diet. So how would he have ended up over here, you may ask? Well, think about it. I see a couple possibilities here. He was murdered about a thousand years before Noah showed up on the scene, about 1,500 years before the flood. When the flood happened, due to the violent nature of the flood event, and it would have been very violent, Abel's body could have been easily unearthed, and in 40 days of flooding and settling and swirling, churning massive currents as the valley sunk down and the mountains rose up, it's very possible that Abel was deposited in Minnesota. Second possibility is that, contrary to popular belief, maybe the upper Midwest of what we now know as the United States was actually the region outside the Garden of Eden. The United States could be where the Garden of Eden originally resided. We really don't know. Lastly, it's possible that the ground that the United States currently is comprised of may have floated from one location on the Earth, and by floating, I mean tectonic plates, to its current location after the flood. I know that Answers in Genesis subscribes to the theory of Pangaea, where it appears that all the countries used to fit together and rapidly separated due to the violence of the flood. Now, personally, I don't buy the theory of Pangaea. These countries are only shaped the way they are based on the water level, and if you try to put them together, you have to adjust the sizes of some, you have to eliminate others. They simply don't just fit together. But it's not a core or a primary or even a secondary issue, so it's okay for there to be disagreement on this. It's okay for Ken Ham to be wrong. Please don't tell Ken Ham I said that. So it's very likely, looking at the evidence, that this skull is in fact the skull of Abel, right? Well, no, not right. There's about a one in an infinity chance that this could be the actual skull of Abel. It comes back to how I weigh things to be worried about, plausibility versus probability. Is it possible that this is the skull of Abel? Eh, sure, it's possible, uh, although we don't actually even know if he got whomped on the head. That, that would be the first thing. But is it plausible? No. No, it's not. It's not plausible at all. I went through this little exercise to prove a point. Hopefully some of you people were losing your minds. As Christians, 
we tend to be knee-jerk reactors. We give off an air of desperation almost. We want people to like us. We want famous, big-named people to like us. As soon as we hear someone famous say, yeah, I've heard of Jeebus, we declare that celebrity a Christian and start parading him or her around the world so as to show how relevant and cool we are. We want evidence and proof we can hold in our hands so that you know, we don't have to face someone and defend our faith. Rather, we can defend our scientific discoveries. This is why we look for things like fragments of the actual cross. We want the Shroud of Turin to be a thing. We see a lump on Mount Ararat from a satellite photo and declare the Ark has been found. And how many times have we been burned by a celebrity? How many times have we been made to look foolish from a silly, snap declaration of scientific proof? The practice of discernment should never stop for the Christian. It's not only relegated to the Bible. That is very important. As we're all likely familiar with, a few short verses in Acts 17 tells us what we should emulate. Quote, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We are definitely supposed to be Bereans. A major problem we're seeing in mainstream or evangelical Christianity is a bunch of lazy Christians. They go, or, well, nowadays oftentimes just lay in the bed or sit on the couch and watch their little rock concert with a TED Talk in the middle of it, and that was church. The pastor, and I use that term really loosely with some, gives his take on what he wants the verse or two he quickly moves through, what he wants it to say, in order to fit with his anecdotes and his three points. And the audience, uh, well, the, uh, the, the congregation <laughs> laps it up like a thirsty dog. But they never open their Bible to see if anything he said was actually true, or in context, or even in there. I had a good exchange on Facebook with a woman a few weeks ago. It was on Stephen Furtick's page. I don't remember what the little quip was that he put on there, but it was something about being nice and that's the gospel, which that absolutely is not the gospel. So I commented something about how he screwed that up, and maybe he should read his Bible as he could find the actual gospel, you know, within the pages. This lady responded back, and she was somewhat unhappy. She used all the standard lingo for someone that's been duped by a wolf like Furtick. After a few exchanges, she actually, and trust me, this is rare, expressed understanding of what I was saying and started offering her thoughts on how she can discern what she's being told. Good on her! If more lay people did this, we'd have fewer and fewer narcissists like Furtick out there duping people for money based solely on his fame for misusing the Bible he purports to believe and being exciting while he does it. Maybe not as important as being Bereans and searching, studying, and discerning the scriptures for ourselves, but still of great import is to be discerning with the physical world, whether that be celebrities we glom onto or the scientific finds we jump on. More often than not, without being very careful, we'll actually hurt our witness by hitching our wagon to someone we shouldn't or making claims that wind up making us look like the unscientific flat earthers the unsaved world believes we are. We see this lack of discernment with regard to the, shall we say, celebrities from the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 11. You know, the so-called super apostles, the Judaizers. They had come into Corinth and said, look at Paul. He's not a good-looking guy. He's all beat up. doesn't speak well. He's just kind of a no-account tent maker. He's constantly moving around. But look at us. 
We're good looking, well to do, great speakers, really stable. Obviously, you can choose who you want to listen to, but don't you want to have the better presentation? Do you think God wants you to be a Paul? Or maybe does he want you to be like us? And at least some did no work to discern the message. They just followed the more popular, more entertaining people. So Paul decided to boast in himself, in a complete act of foolishness, as he states, in order to contrast himself with the Judaizers. And had the Corinthians done this in the first place, looked at both the message and the messenger, they could have discerned who was telling them the truth. Personally, I love finding stories that I can tie back to the Bible, giving a you know, more cogent explanation as to what has been discovered than what these secular scientists attempt to cobble together. But we must be very careful. So as you go through life, as you go to church, as you read the news, as you talk with others, in all things, search, study, think, and evaluate. Don't let the world dupe you with feel-good messages, popular icons, flashy venues. Make sure that what you're being told to believe is actually in the Bible, and that the way you're being told to see and understand it is in keeping with the actual context of the scriptures and being used correctly. If it passes the Berean test, regardless of presentation style, then no problem. But if it doesn't, well, that's a problem that needs to be corrected. Guard the faith. Don't jump at every big name that expresses the slightest interest in Jesus or everything that at first glance allegedly scientifically proves the Bible. Use prudence. Use discernment. Test what you're seeing. Be a Berean. We do not want to damage the faith that we claim to hold at the highest of regard in the eyes of the unsaved by giving the impression that we are who they claim we are. It's your job, your command, to always be ready to give an answer as to the hope that's in you. If the unsaved world sees that we hope in essentially the same thing or the same type of people and messaging that they do, then why do they need what we've got to offer them? And from a personal viewpoint, we all need to grow. I need to grow every day. And that takes work. Sitting, staring at a talking head every Sunday, enduring the whatever he's saying until you can raise your hands high in emotion-based worship, that's not work. That's entertainment. We are neither called to be entertained nor to entertain. We are called to meditate on the scriptures, to dig deep, to gain in knowledge, to grow in wisdom. This is the charge of the Christian. Doing this is the only way to be able to discern the wolves from the saints and to be ready to give that answer. So in everything you do, be a Berean. When you look at the history of man, let's say the written, the documented history of man, we have done unfathomably wonderful, amazing things. In fact, looking at the wonders of the world, the wonders of the ancient world, the monuments, the structures, etc., there are still things that were done that we today have no idea how they were done. Looking at all the technology that has brought us to the moon and allowed us to peer deep into space, we've unlocked secrets of the human body, learned how to repair and even replace most of the parts. We've created machines that can do unbelievable amounts of work. We've discovered elements, concocted chemicals, developed languages, connected land masses, established cities, and the list goes on and on and on. We've also done some very horrible things. Mass genocide, wars, slavery, slaughtering our unborn, using and abusing people, all manner of crime, hatred, jealousy, perversion. 
That list, unfortunately, also goes on and on and on. In Genesis 11, after the worldwide flood of Noah's day wiped out everyone and everything on the face of the earth, except for those safe in the ark and those creatures that could survive the tumult outside the ark, because the, quote, wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. After the population had grown from Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives, and the new civilization of mankind once again rebelled against God, and rather than being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, they decided it would be better to be fruitful and multiply and fill the plain in the land of Shinar instead, and build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens in order to make a name for themselves with their sole point of not filling the earth. That's when I'd imagine God, in an anthropomorphic kind of way, let out a huge (sighs) and went down to the city, looked at the city, looked at the people, looked at the tower, and said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And after God did this, people grouped together with people that they could actually understand, and they wandered off as newly formed clans to various parts of the region, and eventually, the world. Today we know of over 7,000 languages in the world. We don't know how many languages we don't know about. Apparently about a third of these languages are dying out as the old tribes and clans that speak it are dying out. There are many of these languages that are basically the same, and there are still some languages that we don't know, we don't understand. As for the languages that are known, technology exists that can do real-time translation. So we can literally talk to someone in languages neither of us understand but technology does. And for the most part, the world has reconnected languages, reconnected civilizations, just plain old reconnected. Although there is a level of autonomy, a level of sovereignty even today with countries, we're getting closer and closer to being, and there are definite plans and designs for us to be, under a single or a one-world government. So what does this mean? Does this put us back into the realm of Genesis 11? Are we approaching or at the point that God said they have all one language and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them? Now, although we could delve off into the end times prophecy from here, uh, I shan't be doing that. But that being said, there are those that believe, albeit from an evolutionary worldview, that we will be able to do anything we want to do. And further, there may be alien races that are already advanced to this point. Found on Futurism.com, headline, NASA-sponsored researcher suggests it might be possible to change the law of physics. Now, the article itself is short, but the content is very telling as to who man thinks man is, and how the theory of evolution, drawn out to a logical conclusion, causes man to think that we're in control of this entire thing, or at least could be in the future, for humankind. Adam Frank, a University of Rochester astrophysics professor and NASA researcher, poses a theory that mankind, already defined as Homo sapiens sapien, or wise wise man, could eventually manipulate the fundamental laws of physics. And as you could probably surmise, he wants to tie this ability to the obviously advanced alien races. 
Frank wrote in an essay that if a civilization were to advance to the point that they discovered how to change the laws of physics, quote, the very nature of energy itself, with established rules like energy conservation, would be subject to revision within the scope of engineering. Well, I mean, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, what a wonderful Christmas we'd have, right? I, I mean, if I could scrape together some moderate caloric self-control, I wouldn't have to work myself silly to fit into my pants. But we go on. Astrophysicist and all-around smart fella Caleb Scharf posed the theory in 2016 that maybe an alien civilization is behind dark matter. Quote, the theoretical stuff that, as far as our current understanding of the universe is concerned, makes up the majority of mass in the universe. Now, I've covered dark matter briefly before in a segment called Nothing Really Matters, I, I know the cleverness is breathtaking, in episode 15 entitled To Infinity and Kaboom! Here's my layman's summary of dark matter. Finally, what about dark matter? Well, it's something that apparently can't be seen, but has a very slight gravitational effect. Nothing like real matter, though. According to WTAMU.edu, which is West Texas A&M University, dark matter is common in our universe and helps to shape the galaxies and, quote, recent estimates put dark matter as five times more common than regular matter in our universe. Um, but we can't see it, and we, uh, we, we can't touch it or, or use it or do anything with it or apparently even prove it. That site then wraps up the description with, quote, Dark matter is not predicted or explained by standard particle physics theories, but is a crucial part of the Big Bang model. So let me break this down for you. According to the unbreakable laws of physics, dark matter doesn't and can't exist, but we've got to have it exist, because if we don't, the Big Bang Theory falls apart. Again, I say, if your theory doesn't work, get a new theory. So the stuff that we don't know what it is, but we know it must be out there, because if it isn't, they can't make their math work out. Now, apparently, this was just kind of spewed out there by an alien race. As Dr. Evil says, Right. Not to be outdone, Frank cranks out the theory that maybe, and hear him out here, maybe advanced alien civilizations could, quote, mix and match physical laws any way they see fit. And with that, the article wraps up with a few final thoughts from our favorite astrophysics professor, Frank. He thinks it's unlikely this is a reality, and it's far more likely that they put severe limits on life and what it can do. He concedes it may be that, quote, there simply is no way around the limits imposed by the speed of light. So what do we do with this? Well, as I've stated in the past, most branches of science were started long ago by Christians. They weren't so much interested in far-fetched theories. They weren't attempting to disprove God and place man as the king of the mountain. They were mainly focused on one general goal. Figure out how this creation by God works. They took it upon themselves as a challenge to see how things appear to work, how the order stays ordered, how certain things always seem to work the same, and figure out why. By and large, they knew that God set it up that way, that Jesus was and is the sustainer of all creation, but they also knew that systems and processes seem to have been laid out and put in place to create a universe and a planet that just worked the same way every time. 
And through the centuries, we have discovered so many things. And we've been able to bend the laws of physics by utilizing the boundaries of other laws of physics. For instance, we've been able to speed up the speed of light, very slightly, and we've been able to essentially stop light, all controlled with the medium we pass the light through and the temperature at which the medium resides. And all of that's interesting stuff. So now, centuries more advanced than those primitive scientist wannabes who base their studies on an old, outdated text, now we know that there is no God. No intelligent designer that stands above us that placed the wheels in motion. No, we now know that it was all random chance. A big squish, a massive spin, a colossally big bang, heat, light, energy, combining of atoms, combining of elements, gravity, then planets, stars, moons, Water, lightning, goo, living goo, climbing out of the water, and given enough time, here we are, beings poised on the precipice of greatness, not just living in this universe, but on the very verge of taking control of even the most basic foundational laws, and thereby solidifying ourselves as the gods of this cosmic accident. Wise, wise man indeed. Well, I can unequivocally tell Frank, no, we're not going to control the very laws of physics, and no, there are no alien races mixing and matching laws. We will not be pulling the strings of this universe. Frank will find this out one day. We're not here via a cosmic foop. We're here intentionally. Everything is set up to work the way it works because it was set up that way. In fact, God, I think, would have something to say about this, and it would probably sound very similar to what he said a handful of millennia ago to a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That man was named Job. And after God allowed the testing of Job by Satan, after Job lost everything except his life to his own despair, after crying out to God, Why? What have I done? Just let me plead my case. God came down never answered Job's questions as to why, but gave us all a lesson that maybe scientists today should take to heart. And with that, I'll leave you with the words of God. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this! Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, 
Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert, in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen." Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of water may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, that they may go and say to you, Here we are! Who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens, or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong, they grow up in the open, they go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey, to whom I have given the arid plain for his home, and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength and goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I say to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice. 
but I will proceed no further. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.